How many of you got a Bible? Hold it up. A Bible, you're on your iPad or on your phone. We're going to look today at the Word of God, 2 Peter, the book of 2 Peter, in this new series, Unshakable. We're going to look at things that are unshakable, that cannot, regardless of circumstances, time, events, public opinion, moves and shifts in culture that cannot be changed, that are unshakable, unaltered. And one of the things that Peter is going to talk about in 2 Peter, and if you're, if you're not there yet, if you'll go to Revelation and go backwards, and uh, you'll go to Revelation, then you'll see First and Second, Third John, and then you'll come to Second, First and Second Peter, and you'll find it there. We're going to be in Second Peter all day, mostly in chapter one, but some in chapter three. All that Peter talks about, and what we're going to look at today, is the authority, the infallibility, the inerrancy of the Word of God as given to man. It is solid and it is stable. That Bible that you hold in your hand is a lamp, it's a light, it's meat, it's bread, it's honey, it is better than sleep, it is better than friends, and it will stand with you and by you when you stand on it, unlike anything else that you own or possess. I want us to look at the fact that the Word is eternal. In 2 Peter 1, Peter is talking about the fact that the foundation cannot be shaken. This is not theoretical. He is reminding people some 30 to 35 years after the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ that everything that happened then is still valid. It still bears witness. It's still truth. And we need to understand it and apply it. We need to know that you cannot be godly without God, and you cannot be godly without God's Word. We need God's Word because God's Word is His revelation to us to tell us who He is and what He's about. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. Knowledge is a key word here. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything, not some things, everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge, there's that word again, of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Knowledge, he repeats it in chapter 3 and verse 18. Let me give you two quick thoughts here. First of all, without a grasp of God's word, no one can move forward in faith. We're stuck. We're stuck. We may be stuck in kindergarten. We may be stuck in the first grade of our faith. But without a grasp on God's word, no one can move forward in faith. Secondly, we cannot live a godly life if we don't know God because we have no solid standard. What is the standard for a godly life? It's not somebody else. It's what God says is a godly life. It's what God reveals in his word about godliness and about holiness and about righteousness. 
See, a consistent faith that is not shaken stands on the truth of the Word of God. Now, let me just give you a quick for instance here. A number of years ago, we, we revised our Constitution and bylaws, which really is just a legal document that a church has to have. We don't operate by it, we don't sleep on it, and we don't let it determine how we act. We let the Word of God determine how we act and how we behave. But in that Constitution and bylaws, we stated that we are a Southern Baptist church as long as Southern Baptists are committed to the Jude 3, once for all delivered to the saints' faith. I mean, if we woke up one day, tomorrow, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, and somebody said, you know, as Southern Baptists, we need to be enlightened, and we need to understand that the Word of God is dated, and it's outdated, and it's antiquated, and what God said 2,000 years ago shouldn't affect us today, we'd quit being a Southern Baptist church. End of discussion. Because we are not a church even, a church, if we don't believe that the Word of God is final authority for who we are and what we do. Secondly, the New Testament is authoritative. Look at verse 16, 2 Peter 1 and verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now Peter is speaking as an apostle. He's speaking as one of the three on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, Peter, James, and John. He uses I in verse 1. Now he uses we in verse 16. We did not follow cleverly devised tales. Now you'll hear people that will say, well, the Bible is just made up of a bunch of stories that people made up. Peter says that's not what we didn't just make up stories. We didn't try to come up with something spectacular to say. It was spectacular enough that God the Son was walking this earth and that he did miracles and that he did incredible things and he spoke truth into our lives. But he he mentions something here, especially when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what he's talking about there is the second coming. Not the first coming, but the second coming. Here's where, if you go into a a secular bookstore today, you'll find the religion section. And in the religion section, you'll find everything. You'll find Hindu and Buddhist and, and Muslim and Christian and Catholic. I mean, you'll find everything in the religion section. And some of those books, if you buy them, may have a few good ideas. But this is basically what they'll say if they deal with the Word of God. That the Word of God has stories that relate to truth, but it's not the truth in those stories. You see, when Peter writes, he says, the truth, emphatic, definite article. The truth was revealed in the Word of God. The, the, the world religions will say, basically, there's nothing different between Jesus and any other religious leader. 
I beg to differ. Not because I'm a Christian, that is a reason, but because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So either he is right or he's a liar. And if he's right, we better get right. And if he's a liar, we wasted our time coming today. But for 2,000 years, people have endured persecution and heartache and heartbreak for one reason. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. And we believe that he's coming back. And Peter's going to talk about that, that he's coming back. And so here's what people will say in some of their arguments. Well, Jesus really wasn't virgin-born. Jesus really wasn't the Son of God. He was a good prophet. He was a good teacher. He was a moral leader. He was a religious leader, but he's not really the Son of God. And so if he's not really the Son of God, not only did he not come as Messiah and as God, he's not coming back. Beg to differ. He says he's coming back, and Peter's response is the same as our response should be 2,000 years later, verse 16. The power of Christ will be obvious when he returns. He's not just coming, he's coming in power. He is not coming and waiting in the sky to be invited to come back. When he comes, He's going to split the Mount of Olives open. He's going to walk in and he's going to take charge and he's going to take over and he's going to rule and reign and he's going to judge everything that is not of him. He's not going to come and say, could I please get a vote from the American population if it's okay for me to be here? He's going to take the throne of David and he's going to be king of kings and lord of lords and he's going to exercise judgment. The only question is how long before that happens? That's the only question. The question is not is he coming? The only question is how long before it happens? You see the day of ultimate revelation of his power is reserved for his coming. He humbled himself. He became as a servant when he came the first time. Next time He's coming as a king. He's coming as a ruler. He's coming in authority. Now, I, I got saved in the days of the Jesus movement, and, and I always thought in those early days because, uh, by the way, in every great revival, one of the emphasis of every great revival is the coming again of Jesus. That he's coming back. Are you ready if he comes back? You say, well, he hadn't come back for 2,000 years. Why do we think he's going to come back now? Jesus said, no man knows the hour of the day. I don't even know it. The Father knows it. And he says it's going to be just like the days of Noah. What was happening in the days of Noah? They were eating and drinking and marrying and making merry. They were just going about life. Jesus said, when everybody's just going about life and thinking I'm never going to come, that's when I'm coming. So when I got saved in the days of the Jesus movement, I thought, you know, I'm going to live until he comes back. That was easy for me to think when I was 20 years old. Now I'm <clears throat> older, pre way prematurely gray, way, way prematurely gray. And I don't know if he's going to come back before I die or not. I think every generation that loves Jesus would love to say, I met him in the air. I met him, but by the way, those that are dead in Christ, their body's going to be resurrected from them. They're going to meet him too. 
They already met him, but they're going to meet him too. So Peter says this is when the power of his revelation is going to be revealed, when he comes again. Peter is an eyewitness to Jesus, not only what he did, but what he said. Look at verse 16. We were witnesses, eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. That's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration when Moses and Elijah appeared on the mountain with Jesus and a, a sense of the look, of the feel, of the understanding of the glory of God was revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw with their eyes a visible, tangible revelation of the King of Glory. People say seeing is believing. Well, it's true. Seeing is believing. These disciples, these apostles, and hundreds of others saw the resurrected Lord. Paul saw Jesus on the road to Damascus out persecuting Christians, but he saw Jesus and it changed his life. Jesus showed them his hands and his feet. They saw the resurrected Christ. Remember Thomas? Thomas was a Baptist probably the head of a, a committee. And he said, I'm not going to believe unless I see his hands and feet. I want to see the report. And Jesus came and showed him his hands and feet. But Jesus also said this, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. I haven't seen the nail-pierced hands and feet of Jesus, but I believe he died for my sins. We would never believe if the disciples had not seen because they saw and they wrote down what they saw and the Holy Spirit helped them to remember all those things that they saw. But not only what we see, but we stand on facts. We stand on facts. The facts are revealed in the Word of God. Now this is important if all we have is a factual head knowledge understanding of God. You could have been at the crucifixion and written down the facts of the crucifixion. Well, first they brought him out, then they nailed him to a cross, and then they dropped it in the ground, and then he said some things, and then they stuck him with a spear, and then somebody got him and put him in a barred tomb. You could rehearse the facts and not believe. You can know facts. That's why... Christianity is not a matter of knowing facts. It's about letting the facts translate into your heart, into your life, and change the way you think and change the way you live. You see, the facts for the Jews of that day would have said that the cross was proof that he wasn't Messiah because a man who died on a tree was cursed. The Romans would have said in the facts of that day, he was a man that had to die and we did our jobs. The Pharisees would have looked at the facts of that day and said, here's a man who was a thorn in our flesh. He was our fiercest critic, and we got rid of him. But the New Testament says that he died for our sin. The New Testament writers reveal to us the purpose of the cross, the power of the cross, and the plan of God for the cross. You cannot read the New Testament without finding the cross, the story, the testimony, the eyewitnesses of Jesus, 
the purpose, the power, and the plan that God had when he sent his son. The New Testament writers connected the dots. They reached back and they saw Jesus in the Old Testament and Jesus revealed and they wrote the New Testament. It was a completion of the light coming into understanding. Verse 17. Such an utterance, verse 18, and we ourselves heard this utterance. We saw, we heard. These are facts. Remember in the Gospel of Mark, it says, this is my son, listen to him. It would be good for us to listen to Jesus. It would be good for us to listen to what he says to us. Now turn a page to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. I mean, Peter must have written this book knowing he was going to talk to a bunch of Baptists. Because he has to remind them of something he's just said a page before. I mean, that's, you know, some of you that are teachers, homeschool, private school, public school, college, whatever, some of you know, you tell them one thing one day and the next day they don't have a clue you ever said it. Those of you that are parents, you said things like this. How many times do I have to tell you, fill in the blank, how many times do I have to tell you, apparently one more, so Peter has told them, he's heard these utterances, he's been on the Mount of Transfiguration, now in chapter 3 and verse 1, this is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of what? Reminder. That you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by the apostles. So the New Testament is authoritative. The Old Testament is authoritative. Now, hold your place in chapter 3. Go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 19. He's talked about that the, the commandments of the holy, the words spoken by the holy prophets. Now in verse 19, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But he, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. These three verses, verses 19 through 21, are a summation of what God did in the Old Testament. This is a summation of the Old Testament right here. You, you, what Peter is saying, you can't make the Bible say what you want it to say so it makes you feel better about your sin. You've got to let the Bible say what it says and then adjust accordingly. Peter is saying that the Old Testament writers and the New Testament writers are all on the same page. There's not two completely different views of God. There's a progressive revelation of God where man can understand to the level that man can understand. We'll look at that in the, in the Living Bible series that we start tonight. But here's what he's saying. And this is important. 
Peter says, I saw with my own eyes the transfigured Christ. I heard with my own ears the voice of God from heaven speaking to his son. But I have a more sure word of the prophets than what I saw and heard. What Peter is saying is this. I can look back on my experience and say, well, you know, I had an experience. And a lot of people, their Christian life is defined by an experience. But he said, I have something more sure than my experience. I have the word of God given to Moses and to the psalmist and to the prophets. I have the revelation of God from the garden to the 400 years of silence after Malachi. I know that God has spoken. See, not one of the New Testament writers ever doubted the facts of the Old Testament. Not one of them. There's not one New Testament writer that ever said that Moses got it wrong about Genesis 1 through 11, about God creating the heavens and earth, about God creating man, about Satan coming and deceiving man. Nobody ever said, well, he just made that up to make a headline in the newspaper to sell more papers. No. Not one of them ever doubted the facts of the Old Testament. All they asked was, what does this mean? God has revealed himself, and Peter emphatically says, no writer of the Old Testament made up stories. Now this is way too long to get into today, but sometimes people talk about, well, why didn't this book and that book and this book and that book make the canon of Scripture? make it into the 66 books in the Bible. Because in comparing them with Old Testament revelation and comparing them with the words of the apostles, there were stories that were made up because there were people that were trying to write best-selling books so that they could be authorities in the life of the church. And when the council got together to put together the Bible, they judged scripture against scripture and extra-biblical writings against Scripture, and they said, that doesn't belong. That doesn't belong. And so what Peter does here is he's talking about false prophets and false teachers who make up stories, cleverly devise schemes to mislead people. By the way, there's still false teachers and false prophets today that make up cleverly devised schemes to mislead people. But there's a key word here. Peter says these men were moved by the Holy Spirit. Driven is the word. It is a word for the sails of a ship to be fully out and the wind driving a ship, a ship through the sea, through any current, going with the wind. These men had the wind of God behind them, leading them as to what to write. They spoke truth regardless of how anyone received it. Listen, the prophets would not have chosen to write some of the things they wrote. I mean, Elijah wouldn't have made up what... You, you don't stand outnumbered 400 to 1 between an altar and say that the God who answers by fire, he is God, and realize that if God doesn't answer by fire, you're a liar. You wouldn't have said the things that Elijah said to Ahab and Jezebel if you weren't speaking for God because it could cost him his life. 
most of the prophets that was true. You wouldn't have done the things that Moses did to set captives free out of Egypt if you didn't believe you had met God in a burning bush. Nathan would have never said to David what he said. You're the man. You're the sinner. You're the guilty one. Nathan would have never gone in the presence of the king who could have killed him on the spot had he not believed he was speaking for God. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, the minor prophets would have never done what they did if they hadn't believed they were speaking for God. I love what one commentator says about the mark of a true prophet. The mark of a true prophet is they are a reluctant speaker. A reluctant speaker. In other words, they speak with fear and trembling because they realize they are representing God. They don't boast they don't strut. They don't parade themselves. They speak with fear and trembling. The unshakable principle of Scripture is the Old and New Testament revelations and interpretations were the very words of God. So what does it mean? First of all, it's non-negotiable. It's non-negotiable. Now, you can have debates, and that's what apologists do. That's what people like Ravi Zacharias do. They go on college campuses and debate the authenticity of Scripture and the stories and the accounts of the New Testament. But in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3, it's non-negotiable. Know this first of all. First of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? And ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So in chapter 1 and verse 20, he says it's imperative to understand that the Old Testament prophets did not speak on their own. In chapter 3 and verse 3, he says mockers are going to come because they are following their own desires and their own lust. They're saying what helps them. Not what builds up the body of Christ. They're saying what helps them, not what is true to the Word of God. Mockers will come with their mocking, following their own lust. And they question the Word of God. I've lived long enough to hear the Word of God questioned. And I stand on it. It is non-negotiable to me. It is non-negotiable. I can have fellowship that, with people that believe different things about secondary matters in the faith, but when the Bible says Jesus is the only way, the only way I can fellowship with you as a believer is if you believe that Jesus is the only way. Otherwise, I need to share with you the gospel. Because the gospel is truth, and I'm accountable for the gospel, to share the good news of the gospel. It is non-negotiable. Just here's a thought. A watered-down word will sink. A watered-down word will sink. You water it down, you put a hole in the boat, and the gospel ship will go down. Secondly, it will light the path, verse 19. You do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. People today think they're enlightened, but they're actually walking in darkness. Now, how long do you need a lamp? As long as it's dark. 
We live in a dark world. We live in a depraved world. We live in a, a world where Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. We need to walk in the light lest we stumble. The psalmist said, the word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And I will hide it in my heart that I might not sin against God. So how long do we need it? Until the day dawns, until the second coming. Today we have people that have gone beyond Scripture. They've added to it. Uh, they've had revelations and visions. Personally, I think they had ate food past the expiration date. You know, when, when, uh, when my dad died, we were cleaning out my parents' house, and my mom, she loved to make jars of fig preserves. And there were about 54 jars of fig preserves in that house. Now, I don't like fig preserves. One thing, I had to go out to the fig tree and pick the figs. And I don't like fig preserves, and so I didn't eat them. My dad didn't much care for them. And so she'd send me over to the neighbor's house with jars under my arms. My mom wanted to know if you wanted some fig preserves. I know they all ended up in a garbage can, but it made my mom feel better to distribute them accordingly. But when, when my dad died and we're cleaning out the house, they had this little metal white cabinet inside of a room off the kitchen, and it probably had 50 jars of fig preserves in it. Now, some of them, had been there since the 1970s. <laughs> if you think anybody can can good enough and put a seal tight enough to make me eat something that's 30 years old just because it says preserves on it, you've lost your mind. Well, if you just add something to it, like put it with ice cream, no. Put it with some pound cake, no. How about a piece of toast, no. No, I'm not adding anything to it. If I want a word from God, I'm going to look at God's word. First and foremost, let the Holy Spirit teach the word of God to the people of God through the printed page and spark in our hearts. That's truth. That's truth. Thirdly, it will bring to mind truth. Verse 12. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, Peter says, I know I'm about to die, but as long as I've got breath, I'm going to remind you about what God has said. I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Now, here's how the enemy works. First of all, he works in the hearts of believers to try to cut off our fellowship with God by prayerlessness. We, we get guilty, we, we sin, and we cut off and we quit praying. And so he tries to cut us off with prayerlessness, our communication with God. But he also tries to cut us off by not reading and studying the Word of God. Because if we're ignorant of the Word of God, 
If we don't read it, if we don't study it, if we don't know it, somebody can say, well, God says, and you say, oh, well, I guess God said that. And you don't know. You know, it's like the guy said to a man one time, he said, uh, what are you going to say to Hezekiah uh, when you meet him in heaven? He said, I'm going to tell him I really enjoyed his book. There is no book of Hezekiah. What are we going to say when we get to heaven? And Hezekiah walks up to us and says, what do you think about the story of my life? And we say, who are you? You see, we're to know the Bible, the Word of God. Now, where this pulpit sits, stands, whatever it's doing, whatever this pulpit is doing right now, where it is, right up underneath it, there's a shelf. And on that shelf is a copy of the scriptures that we read when we moved into this building 17 or so years ago. And it's open to Psalm 119, which deals with the Word of God, the commandments, the statutes, the, the revelations of God in, in Psalm 119. And it's open underneath this pulpit. And all over this platform are written quotes and sayings and verses. But there's an area that goes from about this vent right here. Thank God for vents. And this vent right here and goes back to about here that I reserve for me. And I spent time on an afternoon with a Sharpie on plywood writing quotes from men like Ron Dunn and Vance Havner and, and Layman Strauss and Manley Beasley and writing scripture. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. I, I wrote scripture verses all around here in what I would call the preaching zone. And so in this zone, preaching zone, there are verses all the way up to the edge. There are verses and quotes and thoughts, but right here. I believe it's in all block letters. I put a quote of C.H. Spurgeon. And anytime anybody stands in this pulpit for the first time, I tell them, now right behind where the pulpit sits are these words. Think carefully. Let him who stands here and preach not Jesus be accursed. Folks, the devil is always trying to look for ways to get you to not believe Jesus and to not take him at his word. You held this book up. It's just not the good book. It's God's book. It's a holy Bible. It is authoritative. It is inerrant, no error in it. It's infallible. It's been translated into hundreds of languages. It's been paraphrased, but in the original manuscripts given to the prophets and to the followers of Jesus, the apostles, it is errorless. You can stake your life on this. When H.A. Ironside was dying, he was blind. And Ironside asked for a copy of the Bible, which he could no longer read because he was blind. And they gave him, as he laid in bed, and he put the Bible under his arm, 
And he made this statement, one of the last statements he ever made. I wish I had read this book more and other books less. I wish I had read this book more and other books less. I read a great golf book this week, but it's not going to help me in my spiritual life, help me to understand something about Ben Hogan and Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas. but it's not going to help me in my spiritual life. I need to read this book. This book will help you. It is the unshakable foundation upon which our faith is built. It reveals to us the sinless Son of God who died for our sins. This book. God's book. It's for you. And it's for me. It scared the Catholic Church when the book started being translated into the languages of the people because they're afraid people get their hands on the Bible and go crazy. Listen, you live in a land where you have the privilege of owning a copy of the Scriptures. If you don't own one, you meet us at the welcome desk, we'll give you one. We'll give you one. But you live in a land where you can own this Bible. I remember Warren Wiersbe told me that in the early days of Youth for Christ, they would give young people red New Testaments. I mean, they were bright red New Testaments. And I said, Warren, why did you give all those young people bright red New Testaments? He said, we said to them, if you're a Christian, you ought not to be ashamed of it. You ought to put that bright red New Testament on top of your books when you walk to school. And let everybody know this is where I stand and this is what I stand for. He said, it's how Youth for Christ was built. By young people being unashamed of the Word of God to carry the Scriptures with them. Even knowing they were going to some classes where teachers would laugh and mock at the Word of God, they carried the Word of God with them. Let's stand. Let's pray. If you're here today and you need Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we're going to sing in just a moment, and I want to invite you to step out and to make a public decision, just like the two did today, the, the young college lady and the young lady who's in elementary school. You could be 85 years old, 55 years old, 15 years old, or 5 years old. But today, God has spoken to your heart that what he has said about his son is true. And so I want to invite you, if you need to trust Jesus today, if there's a voice speaking to your heart today, that you let God speak, and then you respond accordingly. You step out, and you come and find one of our ministers and say to them, I need to trust Christ as my Lord and Savior today. Some of you need to take that old Bible, and you need to open it. You need to wear out some pages. I'm working on a second one right now. I've already given one of my Bibles that has about 75 to 100 sermons in it. And it's highlighted all the way through. I've given it to one of my daughters. I said, this is what I've lived by. Guard this. Not because it's my Bible, because it's what God showed me out of the Bible. Get another one ready for my other one. I've got a friend that has five kids he said, my goal is before I die to give every one of my kids a well-marked, well-used copy of God's Word that has come from my hands to their hands. Maybe you need to make a recommitment of your life to just be a student 
of the Word of God. So I know people that don't believe anything about the Word of God. Let me give you a challenge. Here's how you can help reach your one. Ask your one to read the Gospel of John for a month. Get through it, start over again. Get through it, start over again. Just ask them to read the Gospel of John for a month. I promise you, half of them, before they get all the way through the Gospel of John, will come talk to you about who is this Jesus and why does he make a difference. So we're going to sing. They're going to sing. And as they sing, you respond as God leads you in this moment.